You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 will be our text for this morning. We've picked up just last week, started a new series through this letter uh, to these churches, the dispersion there in this region in Asia Minor, and uh, be continuing on this morning with uh, digging a little deeper into just these first few verses. Uh, so this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're jumping back into the book of 1 Peter. Since last week we covered all of the first word together. We're going to now go on to uh, words 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. We're going to get a little farther this morning into the book of 1 Peter. Peter, the, the pace will pick up a little bit, but Peter really just front loads there's, there's, it's very rich here, these first two verses. We're not going to make it out of verse 1 this morning. And then next week, we won't make it out of verse 2. But you can just, you can read that. And there's, it's, it's tempting to just skip over these introductions as though um, they're just kind of pleasantries on the way to somewhere else. But you'll see as we get through the rest of this book that Peter, in his introduction, he knows where he's going to go with the book. And this, this idea, that these ideas that he's bringing up here at the beginning are themes he's going to return to or are or, or, or themes that are going to anchor the rest of what he is going to go on and preach to. Right here, though, at the beginning, Peter, he, he notifies and he, he gives his title. It isn't, he says simply, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I just want to make a few notes on that. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But Peter is assuredly one of the elite few who were known as, as capital A apostles of Jesus Christ. Peter, we mentioned last week, was one of the first disciples called, first in the list of the naming of the disciples, calls Jesus. He's the first one to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He, he's uh, one of the, one of the, um, one of the uh, essential figureheads of the disciples or of the apostles. Now, the word apostle just simply really means just a sent one. Lots of times you'd have a courier if you were a, a had a city and you're wanting to send in a message to someone, you might send an apostle. It's the same kind of language there of a, of a sent one on a, mission, on a mission with a message. And so simply, apostle can just mean a sent one. But here Peter specifically calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses that title a lot in his books. Like you'll 
when you read uh, Galatians, Philippians, and Colossians, Paul will talk about, and he has to kind of emphasize, now remember, I'm an apostle who was called by Jesus. And he'll, he'll maybe give a little more like background to his calling by God because Paul was an unusual apostle. He did not walk with Jesus when he was lived on the earth. In fact, uh, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was decidedly against the Jesus movement from within Judaism until his conversion on the Damascus Road. And, and he becomes, he has a vision. He sees the risen Christ in resplendent glory and is converted and is, then becomes an apostle recognized by the rest of the apostles. But Peter, his, his uh, apostolic call and office is not in question in the church whatsoever. Everyone knows that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, this is so simple, but I mean, this is, is an important thing to learn maybe. Jesus Christ is not his full name like I am Darren Dolacek, right? Like sometimes people say Jesus Christ, that's just like his full name. No, Jesus is his personal name coming from Joshua, which means he saves. That's the name he is given is Joshua, Christ, Jesus, similar to Joshua, but his, his title is Christ. He is Jesus the Christ. Peter is referring here to both his humanity as Jesus and his divinity, his his divine place as the Christ. He is the Messiah, um, the anointed one. If you were to look at the Hebrew roots of that word, Christ, is, he is the anointed one. He is God's Messiah. So it's much more like it's his title. It's, Jesus is his name and Christ is his title. So Paul, Peter here is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter has known him both in his humanity as Jesus and then now in his divinity as Christ, the anointed one, the king over all. So now this passage, in these next few verses, it's going to force upon us two critical worldview shifts that are necessary for the Christian life, the Christian view to make much sense. The rest of this book will be weakened in its power to affect us if we don't see these two shifts of worldview thinking clearly. Now, what do I mean by worldview? Everyone has a worldview. It's just simply the construct through which you view the world. We all have traditions, customs, upbringings, uh, all sorts of influential uh, factors upon our life that form a worldview for us. It's the set of lenses by which we view everything. Everyone has their definitions or their understandings of when did life begin? What is life about right now? Where is life ultimately going? Like what is Everyone has their eschatological end. Like Christianity will speak about Jesus is going to return. The kingdom will come to fruition. The will be consummated and we will have a glorious future on a new heavens and a new earth with Christ. We have an eschatology. But everyone really has an eschatology. It's just a hope of whenever, today it's mostly whenever this political party finally has full whatever gets to have their way, then we'll have the glorious future of whatever. That's the American eschatology. Everyone has a, 
a, an idea of when life began, what life is about right now, where life is going, and then through that, how does a person find purpose and meaning in the midst of life? That's your worldview, how you view the world. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a very sensible way to call it. How you view the world, that's your worldview. But your worldview will have incredible influence over how you interpret the circumstances of your life. When things happen to you, your worldview, how you view the world, where it came from, what's going on right now, where it's going, will totally uh, augment the way that you interpret the circumstances of your life. It will augment and change how you make decisions. And it also has incredible influence on the way you endure suffering. What do you do when things happen to you that you don't want to have happen to you? Or what do you do whenever things you want to have happen don't happen? Your worldview makes all the difference in how you handle suffering. Where did the world come from? What's it all about right now? Where is it all going? That worldview is going to totally affect how you view the circumstances of your life, what decisions you might make, how to deal with suffering. So we find the worldview that Peter lays down in two simple words. Two simple words here, but they are dynamite. If you, if you sit and think about these two words, the implications from these two words, when he addresses the audience here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. To those who are elect exiles. He says they are elect, meaning that they are chosen. They are God's elect people. And exiles, meaning that they are living in a place that is not their home. Here's how one commentator uh, speaks about this, this tandem, these two words here. He says the phrase chosen sojourners, which is elect exiles, chosen sojourners. The phrase chosen sojourners thus becomes a two-word sermon to Peter's readers. They are sojourners, not in an earthly sense, for many, no doubt, had lived in one city their whole lives, but spiritually, they're sojourners. Their true homeland is heaven, and any earthly residence, therefore, is temporary. Yet they are chosen sojourners, ones whom the king of the universe has chosen to be his own people, to benefit from his protection, and to inhabit his heavenly kingdom. They are sojourners. And he doesn't say the exiles. It's not as though they're like literally have left some town and they're exiled in some other town. Many people could have lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia their whole life. Many people live in the same town, in the same county, their whole lives. Have you heard of people like this? I'm one of them. <laughs> so far, lives their whole lives in one area. So they're not in any physical, real way in exile. But so, so does this not apply to me? And maybe this passage is pointless because I'm not in exile from my physical place of living. But he's writing to them as elect exiles. And I don't think this is just the specific group of people who find themselves physically exiled. No, this is talking about some other kind of exiles. They are sojourners. They are out of place. They are not at home for some reason or another. So what does it mean in this description of 
of elect exiles or chosen sojourners. What does it mean to be elect? How does this, there's, so there's two worldview switches we're trying to flip. One of them is elect and the other one is exiles. These two ideas really bring it into focus the way that we view the world. What is meant by elect to be chosen? And we'll get into that a little more next week because you see in verse 2, he says all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew beforehand the people of these five regions being written to that they'd be elect exiles. All of it, in fact, is happening according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But think of the big, the big shift that occurs in a term like chosen, chosen by God. It provokes in us this reality that God really is the one in charge. God is the one in charge. It is his world. It is God's world. Now, this is repulsive to us, like almost like reflexively. The idea of God being the one choosing, God being the one electing, God being the one according to his foreknowledge, uh, selecting a people for himself, it's repulsive if you're in stuck in the worldview that you run the world and your future, which is why it really clashes. I love America, but why it clashes with a lot of our independent autonomy here in America? Because we are expressed individualism is our bread and butter. You get to be the unique you. You write your history. You write your future. You write whatever you want to be is what you get to be. You are the master of your own domain. That's what we live, eat, breathe, and drink. But when, Paul, when Peter comes in here and says, calls them elect exiles, he's bringing up this just revolutionary idea that it is not you that says how the world goes. It is, in fact, someone else. God is the one who runs the world. It is his world, and he runs it. Now, this is a problem because the view that we are born with is that we run the world. Everyone intrinsically, your natural state is to believe that you run the world. Our natural state is that you control your future. It's a problem. That's the view we were born with. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, we now all struggle with this impulse. We are far more comfortable in saying something like this, God is ours. We have chosen God. We are far more comfortable with that language because it puts the power in our hands. We have chosen God. We're far more comfortable saying that God is ours. It puts us in power and God as the one that we elect. God is the one that we chose. We can stress that we decided, we believed, we chose to follow God. It's way more comfortable because you get to keep your autonomy. But the Bible has a total, you have to wrestle with this. If you're going to be a Bible Christian, you got to wrestle with these terms no matter what. What do you do with election? What do you do with choosing? What do you do with foreknowledge? What do you do with all this stuff? Now, these are all lived realities of deciding, of believing, of choosing to follow God. Certainly, the Bible does say, does call us, 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's something we do, absolutely. They're all lived realities from our perspective. That is the way it plays out. But this is where the worldview is so important. Yes, this is the way it plays out in your life. I will call you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You must believe to be saved. You must believe. But the, the worldview is that our perspective is not the perspective. Our view, the way we see it, is not the view. It is a view, but there is a dominant view outside of us. Your view is not the dominant view of the universe. Our view is not the view. There's God's view, and he's the one who really is in charge. The foundational and humbling truth under the Christian is not that they have chosen him in their strength, which is woefully wimpy, so that's good news, that you've not chosen God in your strength, but that he has chosen his people in his awesome and gracious power. If you are his, ultimately it is not because you were strong in grasping him, but he in his strength grasped sinners and brought them to himself. That is an anchor to stand upon. If it is up to me and my grabbing of him, I am beyond worried because I know my track record. I know my faithfulness. I know my promises and how many of them I fail to keep. But if God is the one who promises and he's the one who grabs, we know he is a God who is doing the keeping. This, this shift of view is a huge anchor in the life of the Christian. This term also anchors the church in this narrative that God has been writing since creation. Chosen or elect is the language that God has used throughout his relationship with a specific people, his people. He's called them chosen. Don't believe me. Go to Deuteronomy, okay? Let's go to the, the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Is this incredible, just humbling <laughs> uh, word from God to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, speaking to his people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, the Lord your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him face to face. But starting out here, these first few verses, you hear this language of him speaking to his people. They are his chosen 
ones. God has a special people set apart for him to glorify him. Starting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel. All leading to Christ, the seed of Abraham. All of which, when we believe, those who would believe in Christ are then adopted into the family line. They become children of Abraham. Peter is making this connection that this group of Christians scattered in Asia Minor, this group of Christians made up of both Gentiles and Jews scattered throughout this region, they are the continuation of God's story. From the beginning of Genesis to their modern day and even to modern day now, the church of Christ is God's continued story, part of God's plan. The church, the body of individuals that make up the church, we are not an afterthought in God's mind. He is in charge. It's his world, and he is working his perfect purposes. We can trust him. We can trust him. Elect exiles. What does it mean then to be an exile? It just simply means this world is not our home. Where or upon what do we ground our identities? What gives definition and meaning to our lives? And again, if we're the rulers of the world, we see this anxious scramble all around us to scratch and struggle to give ourselves some sort of identity, to make the world mean something, to try to give ourselves meaning. A question that has been given an incredible amount of weight in our culture today is the question, what do you identify as? All about identity, struggling with identity, and helped by the view of complete autonomy, so much stress and attention is given today to trying to find out where you belong. What is your identity? And it begins to be a crisis for scores, for generations of just individuals just struggling and torn apart trying to figure out identity. Who am I? What am I? What is the point of who I am? This worldview makes a huge difference here. How you see the world. It's why gender identity has become such a huge issue in our culture. And it's the same reason why political uh, radicalness has become such a huge thing in our culture today. People with more allegiance that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party become more religions than Christianity. And the banner over their life is more of a political party than even Christianity. That the, the, the people struggling, desperate for identity. For the Christian, the question of identity is answered. Where do you belong? Where is your identity found? Not here, but with God. You are an elect exile. This place is not your home. We are not our own, but we belong to him. We've been bought with a price. We are his servants. Where he is, where Christ is, that is where our foundational belonging is. Therefore, our identity in this world is one of sojourners. We are passing through on our way home. All the pressure that the world lives with, trying to invest this life with so much meaning, people running themselves ragged, Working jobs, doing this, going there, having just their lives crammed full, trying so hard to give this life meaning. And then people consequently so crushed 
when their plans get ruined, when life doesn't go the way they want it to, when, when sickness occurs, when death occurs, when job loss occurs, when all sorts of tragedies happen, things just crumble catastrophically around them because they're investing so much in this life. All the pressure that the world lives with to get our lives perfect, to accumulate some measure of existence that makes us noteworthy in this world, the Christian ought to live free of. This is the life that Christ has called us to. When Christ calls you, he calls you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. It's Luke 9, 23. John warns us in 1 John 2, 15, not to love the things of this world, because this world is not your home. The warning is not to get all tied up in this world, because this world is not your home. This is not ultimately where you belong. Now, this is a major theme of this book. We'll return to it. Uh, we look down, it actually runs all the way through here, but you look specifically at chapter 2 back in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, he's writing here in verses 9 through 11, speaking again to the dispersion. Here are these five towns, Asia Minor, the church of God, Gentiles and Jews together. He says of them in chapter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you had no identity. But now you have an identity. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, there's that language again, to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we'll return to that in a few weeks coming up here. But this idea that the church, the Christian, is an elect exile. God is the one in charge. This world is not our home. It's a major theme of this book. These switches, once flipped Liberate the Christian for joy and service with a costly love that will impact every area of their life for the better and spill over into the world around them. If we can become gladly convinced of our position as elect exiles, it empowers us to suffer. It empowers us to suffer and to persevere gladly through trials. Peter's going to get into it here. And he's going to say that that suffering in for righteousness' sake is actually good. That's what we talked about when our reading this morning, earlier in the service. It empowers us to suffer and to persevere gladly through trials. How? Because we are convinced, we are convinced of his love for us, seen through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross to suffer a sinner's death so that everyone looking to him would be redeemed, would be forgiven of their sin, made righteous in God's sight, understanding that all of that is his sovereign plan and bringing people to himself. So we're able to persevere gladly because we know this world is not all there is. There is a life coming. And so we're able to live as elect exiles, confident that the pressure is not upon us to build a lasting city in this world. That's good news. I, 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 to think about 
my wife is, is mine in a, in a real way in this life. She is my wife. But in another sense, she's not mine. She's God's. I'm not even mine. How could she be mine? My kids, they're my kids, but they're not, they're not really mine. They're his. I'm not even mine. How could they be mine? They're his. And that's the best place, that is the best hands to be in. This church that I'm working to serve and want to see prosper and glorify God, it is my church because I've been here five years and trying to pour my life into seeing God magnified here. But this isn't my church. How could this be? It's not, it's, I'm not even mine. It's God's church. You know, it's not your church either. It's God's church. And we can live free from the pressure to make everything happen and give ourselves costly, sacrificially to the, to the glorifying, to the lifting up of the name of Jesus Christ because we know I'm, I'm an elect exile. I'm chosen sojourner. This world is not my home. I'm his. There's no better place to be and I can rest in his hands. One day where God dwells, we will dwell with him. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would work these two lenses deep into our sight. Marveling at your control over all things, your sovereignty. You are the king. You sit in heaven. You laugh at those who belittle you. You have no worries. God, I want to rest in a God that strong. I look at the world and I, I worry. I do not laugh at the trouble that I see. But you're not troubled. You're working your purposes. Father, help us to rest there and help us to live boldly, knowing this world is not our home. We are passing through. We have a glorious inheritance laid up for us. So, God, we can live radically, which is just normally for the Christian, for your glory, the spread of your fame, for the good of your people. God, work that into our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.